0: Today's text comes from Acts 5, 1 through 11. Hear the words of the Lord. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold this land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her besides her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let me pray and then we begin. O gracious God, would your spirit speak through us, speak through me to us, Lord. Would you mow our hearts, mow our minds, that we may have the right attitude towards you. And may all that we do, all that we say, bring you glory. For Christ's sake. Amen. Fear is an emotion that all of us have. And I want to ask y'all, do you know in America, what do Americans fear the most? What is the number one phobia? Fear of God? Nope, not even close. Fear of public speaking is the number one fear, all right? Fear of public speaking after that is the fear of heights, the fear of insects, bugs, and spiders. I mean, when you're standing in front of everybody, you're like naked, you know that? I mean, what do you do if your hands... Do you put them behind you? Do you put them in your pockets, one hand in a pocket, both hands in a pocket? Do you put them in balls, you know, that, or do, you, do you let them just drop like dead fish beside you? So the fear of public speaking is one of the greatest fears. But we are always trying to get rid of our fears. So if you go to like TED.com and just punch in fear, you come up with a playlist in terms of how to overcome your fears. All right, and this notion in terms of overcoming your fear and basically to take it away, it also seeps into public, uh, into the popular culture. Because if you want to be a Jedi Knight, you have to control your fear. Do you remember the scene, you know, that when Anakin Skywalker was in front of the Jedi Council and he was being interviewed whether he could be uh, an apprentice? What did Yoda say to him? Robbie? (laughs) No. (laughs) You you can't. You didn't remember it. Too old for for this. All right. He said this, you know, that fear is a path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I sense much fear in you. (laughs) And so you see that, you know, So fear is something that we try to eliminate and try to get rid of it as much as possible. But it's fear something that we should always try to overcome and to extirpate and to eliminate. I don't think so. And this morning, I want to tell you a story about a couple who did not have the right kind of fear. And it led to terrible and disastrous consequences. So what I'm going to do is that I'm going to tell you the story, and then I'm going to explain it because it requires a lot of explanation, and then I'll draw the big idea, and then I'll try to draw some applications for us, all right? So it begins with the story first. Now the story here really begins all the way back to Acts 4.32, and Acts 4.32 begins with this notion that all the believers were gathered together in one heart and one mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. In fact, they shared everything that they had. If somebody had need, they willingly sold it, and then they put the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. Now, this is not communism. This is not communalism at all. For the giving was voluntary. The giving was voluntary, and people could still keep the possessions if they needed it much better model to think of it is that this was like a family model. If one member in a family needed something, other family members tripped in and helped in as much as they could. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in their lives that there was no needy person among them. There was no needy persons among them. And that phrase there, there was no needy persons among them, Actually recalls a similar phrase in Deuteronomy 15:4. In Deuteronomy 15:4, it's Moses telling the Israelites that when you go over into the Promised Land, it is going to be so bountiful that there would there would be no needy persons among you. And by Luke saying this, by Luke saying this that there's no needy people within the community in in, in the church in Jerusalem itself, he was saying that the church. Was the, was the fulfillment of what Israel was meant to be. The early church was the fulfillment of what God had intended the people to be. And so one of the people who did these things was Barnabas. Barnabas was a Levi from Cyprus. He sold his property and then brought the money and put it down at the feet of the apostles. But there was another couple there. Ananias and Sapphira. And they, when they saw how everybody was praising and thanking God for what Barnabas had done, they began to be jealous. And then they, therefore, they wanted people to praise them too. So they sold a piece of property, kept back a little bit of the money, and then gave the rest to the church. But when they gave the money to the church they reported that the money that they gave was the price that they had sold the property for. Let me give you an example, right? So they had a vacation home. They sold it, they sold it for 100000 and then they kept 50000 and then they gave the 50000 to the church. But when they placed the check at the feet of the apostles, you can just imagine them saying, you know, you can just imagine them saying, you know, Peter... The hymn, I Surrender All, is so precious to me. All to Jesus I freely give, all to him I freely give, all to Jesus I surrender. Now, God has blessed me so immensely, and I want to give it back to be used for his kingdom. That's why I sold my vacation home and decided to give all the proceeds. Did I say all? Oh, that's right, all the proceeds, all 50,000 of it to help those who are less fortunate. He expected to be praised. He expected to be congratulated. But instead, Peter confronted him, and he fell down and died. Three hours later, his wife came in, Sapphira came in, and she knew that her husband had given the check to the apostles, so she expected to be greeted with gratitude and admiration. Instead, She again was confronted by Peter, and she also fell down and died. And so when everybody heard about it, there was great fear. Now, this passage requires a lot of explanation. And one of the things that really needs to be explained is what were their sins? What was the specific sin that they had? And the specific sin was not embezzlement at all. They did not steal other people's money. They did not misappropriate funds that belonged to someone else. It was their own money. So it's not embezzlement. And the spend was also not the amount of money that they gave. They were under no obligation to sell the land, and they are under no obligation to share all their proceeds. But their sin was the sin of deception, was the sin of lying. You see here in verse 3, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And so here their motivation was really not out of generosity, out of caring for the poor, but their motivation was to gain a reputation to which they had no right. The phrase that you have lied to the Holy Spirit can also be translated in this way that you have defrauded. You have falsely misrepresented the Holy Spirit. Because when the church was giving, what was the source and motivation of their giving? It was the Holy Spirit that was at work. But what was the source of giving of Ananias and Sapphira? It was not the Holy Spirit at all. In fact, it was Satan. That's why Peter said, why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart? And the notion of filling is important because instead of being filled by the Holy Spirit, as the rest of the apostles were, they were filled by Satan. And so it was deception there. But the other thing too, the other problem was that they were testing the Spirit of the Lord. So Peter said, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? The language of testing was used of the Israelites in the wilderness, when they were testing the patience of God through apostasy and rebellion. So in this same way here, Ananias and Sapphira, they were testing the patience of God. Presumably, they thought that the Holy Spirit was either not present in the church or the Holy Spirit was present, that it need not be grieved or it need not be accountable. And so they were testing and pushing the boundaries in terms of how far they could go before God would take notice of it. And so, they were guilty of testing the Spirit here. You know, they could have said, Peter, we originally wanted to give all the money from the sale of our vacation home to the church, but something came up. And so, we can't, and we are now only able to give half of what we intentionally wanted to give. And that would have been fine. But no, they wanted the reputation that others had. They wanted the praise from other people, and they wanted to be recognized to be generous generous people when they actually were not. And so they were arrogant, they had no fear of God, and they thought that they could act with impunity towards God. Now when we take a look at this incident, you see that there are Old Testament parallels. And the most significant Old Testament parallels was the story of Achan, do you remember the story of Achan that when the Israelites were trying to, after conquering uh, Jericho, all right, they were going to continue conquering other places, but Achan kept back something all right, from the plunder? The same word that, A- that was used to describe Achan keeping back something is the same word that Luke uses of Ananias in terms of keeping back something. And so Luke is intentionally wanting to allude to the story of Achan. And so just as the plant of Achan hindered the conquest of Israel within the Canaan itself, so Luke is also saying that the deception of Ananias and Sapphira is hindering the conquest of God's word within the world by their deception. So therefore, it needed to be dealt with just as the sin of Achan needed to be dealt with. But there's also another incident, another Old Testament parallel. And a very minor story in Leviticus talks about these two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. They were priests. And part of their duty was to offer fire before the presence of God. But they did it in such a way that showed no respect God. And so fire from the presence of the Lord came down and consumed them. And then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord said Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of the people, I will be honored. And so here, that the sin of these people here in the instance of Nadab and Abihu, they did not honor God. They did not fear God and treat him with all the honor that he deserves. But nonetheless, we're still a little bit troubled by this. We're still troubled. Were they believers? Could God do this to, to believers itself? And the answer is that it's not that clear. It's very uncertain whether they are believers. Some say they were, some say they weren't. I tend to think that they were believers itself here. And we should be careful not to portray them as the worst of villains. After all, they were willing to sell property and to give it to God, and that was good. I mean, the only wrong sin of them was the wrong motivation that they had. But Scripture also gives us other examples where God judges believers. Temporally in this life. But even though, I would say that even though God judges believers temporally in this life, yet he does not take away their salvation. And that's something that we must be careful to remember. But you ask yourself, you know, why weren't they given a chance to repent? Why was it so swift? Why was it so immediate? And I think in some senses there was a chance for repentance. Before, because, you know, as Peter was talking to Ananias, he gave six questions before he made the pronouncement of judgment. Six questions. Why did Satan fill your heart? Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Why did you keep back part of the proceeds? On and on and on. So Ananias had a chance to respond, but he didn't. The same thing was also true of Sapphira. And there were two questions were asked of Sapphira before Peter's pronouncement of judgment. And the question was, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? A clear chance to say, no, this wasn't the price. But she didn't. And so because of that, they, because of the hardness of their heart, they would judge accordingly. But other questions arise. Why was the judgment so harsh? Why death? Why not expulsion? Where is the God of grace in all of this? There are no easy answers to these questions, but let me just offer some perspectives here. God's grace is manifested in his protection of the church against Satan. If you remember, in Acts 4, there were external attacks on the church by the Sanhedrin, and they were persecuting the apostles. But it didn't work, because the apostles were bold as brass. There were attacks from outside, from without. But when that didn't work, Satan then began to have attacks from within. And so then Satan began to test and to tempt Ananias and Sapphira, saying, don't you see the praise that these people had? Don't you want it to, be, to have it for yourself too? And so Satan began to have a foothold in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira. And that ultimately then, it began to insidiously work in him and until it led to deception here. So God's grace is seen in his protection of the church against Satan. But God's grace is also seen in his purifying of the church so that it can fulfill its mission. God Cares immensely about the church and he identifies so closely with the church that if the church should suffer, it is as if Christ himself would suffer. If the church should suffer, it is as if Christ himself would suffer. Do you remember what Jesus said to Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But Saul wasn't persecuting Christ directly. He was persecuting the church. But Christ so identifies with the church that any persecution on the church is a persecution on Christ. In the same way here too, God so identifies with the church and that he wants the church to continue and fulfill its mission and its mission is to testify to the resurrection of Christ and in order to do that effectively, he must purify the church. And so God's grace is then seen in his purifying the church so that it can fulfill its mission to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. At the same time, too, every sin, no matter how small, makes us guilty before God and worthy of condemnation. Every sin, no matter how small, makes us guilty and worthy of condemnation. And so instead of being surprised at the swiftness of God's judgment, perhaps we should be surprised at the mercy and patience of God that none of us are instantly punished when we sinned. Instead of being surprised at the severity of Ananias and Sapphira's judgment, we should be surprised at the mercy of God that none of us are instantly punish when we sin. For Scripture says that God does not treat us as our sin deserves or repay us according to our iniquities. Now, having explained this, you know, this leads us to the, the big idea in this passage here. And I think that this passage is telling us two things. It's telling us the attitude we are to have towards God, and it gives us the reason why we are to have this attitude. And the attitude we are to have towards God is to fear God. Ananias and Sapphira did not fear God and instead tested him. And so God then struck them down. But after God struck them down, the passage, Luke records for us that the fear is God is mentioned twice. And great fear, in verse 5, sees all who heard what had happened. In verse 11, it also says that great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events here. It's mentioned twice, and I think that Luke mentions it twice because it's this way of telling us that this is the attitude and the posture we are to adopt before God. But what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear Him? The word fear spans a spectrum. It spans a spectrum in terms of terror and dread, and it spans a spectrum in terms of this awe, reverence, and veneration. And all humans are to fear God. Unbelievers fear God in terror and dread because of the judgment that is to come. But believers do not fear God in that way because they are his children, and they are able to approach him by the blood of Christ. And so believers fear God in having a deep awe, a deep reverence, and a deep veneration of God. There's also another way in terms of making this distinction, and I'll give you different ways in terms of how authors have understood this sense of fear of God. Martin Luther made this distinction between the servile fear of God and the filial fear of God. And the servile fear of God is the fear that a prisoner in a prison cell has towards his tormentor or towards his executioner. This terror, this dread. Or it's the fear that a slave might have when a master, a wicked master comes with a whip to torment the slave. It's this fear But instead of this fear, there is a filial fear. And the filial fear is a fear that believers as children have towards a loving father. in the fear and apprehension and nervousness of not wanting to disappoint their parents, not because of afraid of punishment, but because they do not want to disappoint their parents, who is the source of their security and the source of joy. And this filial fear is a fear that... Believers ought to have. I prefer C.S. Lewis' version of his fear of God. And his way of fearing of God is seen in terms of the land which on the wardrobe. And there's this is between Sarah and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver said, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And Sarah is a little bit taken back. Ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. I tell you that. And so here, you know, a fear of God is a fear of coming before someone who is so powerful and so omnipotent. But nonetheless, this fear of God, and we need to remind that this fear of God is also tinged with a God that is loving, if a God that is gracious, if a God that is kind. And so it gives us a sense of this trepidation, but at the same time recognizing that the God that we are to be afraid of is a God that cares for us and loves us. That's also another way in terms of Jerry Bridges. He presents it in this way. This fear of God is recognized that there's an infinite gap in wealth and dignity between God the creator and man the creature. Even though man has been created in the image of God, the fear of God is a heartfelt recognition of this gap. Not to put people down, but rather to exalt God. And so this here, fear of God, fear of recognizing that God is totally different from us, and that we can only come into his presence by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So this is the attitude that we are to have, that the passage is telling us, the attitude that we are to have towards God. And now the passage also tells us the reason why. And the reason why is that God is present in the church. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church, they were in essence lying to the God who was present in the church. When God struck down Ananias and Sapphira, God demonstrated that He was present in the church. And I think it's worthwhile to compare this episode in Acts 5 with Acts 2. Do you remember in Acts 2, there were great miracles of signs and wonders that were done among the apostles? And after that, God was present to bless the church, but the people had fear. That was the first time that fear is mentioned in the book of Acts. The second time that fear is mentioned in the book of Acts is in this passage here in Acts 5. And we see the same thing again. See that God is present in the church. God is doing miracles, but it's a different miracle. It is the miracle of judgment. And I think that what Luke is doing by this here is telling us that God is present in the church. And that God is present in the church both to bless and also to judge. God's presence is manifested in the miracles of signs and wonders, and God's presence is also manifested in the miracle of judgment itself. Let me ask you this. How many of you want to be in a church where God is truly and powerfully present? Most of us would say that we all want to come into an encounter with God. We pray that God will be truly present in our church. How many of you want to be in a church where there are great miracles of blessings, great miracles of healing? I want. Who wouldn't want to be? How many of you want to be in a church where God is present with miracles of judgment? Not, not me. I don't want, you know that both of it is a demonstration of the presence of God. Both of it is a demonstration of the presence of God. And I think that if we truly desire the presence of God in our church, we must develop a deep reverential fear of God. For I fear that if God is truly powerfully present in our church, and if we do not maintain a deep reverential fear of God, I'm afraid that God will discipline us accordingly. And so if we truly desire the presence of God to be powerfully at work in our church we must we must develop a deep reverential fear of God so God is present fear God for he is present in the church both to bless and to judge fear God for he is present in the church both to bless and to judge Let me just end with a couple of applications. A couple of applications here. How can I grow in the fear of God? There's this book by Albert Martin, The Forgotten Fear, and the forgotten fear is the fear of God. And he lists about eight ways in terms of how we can grow in our fear of God, and I'm just going to highlight three here. And one of it here, the first one, is to feed your soul on the majestic greatness of God. When we remind ourselves of God's holiness, of God's power, and of God's omnipotence, when we remind ourselves that he is the creator of all things and that we are just the created beings, it is hard for us then as created beings, as creatures, not to fear the creator. So feed ourselves on the majestic greatness of God, first way. The second way is to feed your soul with the reality of the forgiveness of God. When we discover that this great and holy God has forgiven our sins, how can we not but love Him and fear Him? How can we not love Him and fear Him? Notice that I put loving and fearing God together. And Scripture does not put them as separate. Scripture puts them together. And that fearing God is just another way of manifesting our love for him. Let me show it to you this way. Do you remember the great Shema? Hear, O Israel, our Lord, our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love God. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. Do you know how that section is introduced by Moses? In Deuteronomy 6.1 and 2, Moses said, This is all the words and commandments that God has given me to instruct you so that you may fear God. And so the notion of fearing God and loving God are very closely intertwined and that they are sometimes almost interchangeable. And so we feed our soul with the reality of the forgiveness of God that would then lend us towards an awe of the majesty of who God is and lead us to fear him. The third way, in terms of cultivating this fear of God, is to cultivate an awareness of God's presence here. If God is to be feared, it is because He is near and He knows our innermost thoughts, our desires. Do you remember Psalm 139? He knows our rising and our sitting down, He knows our going forth and our lying down. Where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I hide from your presence? And so knowing the presence of God and being totally aware of it will lead us to have a fear of God. Let me give you another application in terms of what it means to fear God. And fearing God should cause us to seek the praise of God rather than the praise of people. Our desire should be to please God and not people, not like what Ananias and Sapphira did Their desire should be to please God and not people. And this should cause us to live lives of integrity rather than hypocrisy. You know, as believers who live in a culture where appearance is everything, there will come a time in your life where you will have to make a decision as to whether you are going to fear God and to live lives of integrity, or you're going to put a spin on everything. You may be coming up for an evaluation, And in order to impress your boss or your teacher, you may claim more credit for the work of the team than what you truly desire. I'm not saying that we shouldn't put our best foot forward, but we may be tempted to put a spin on our weakness or exaggerate our contributions so as to put ourselves in a better light. I face this thing, I face this dilemma myself too. You all know, some of you may know that I'm up to come up for application for tenure. And tenure, it's a, it's a stressful thing, because m- my colleagues are gonna evaluate me upon my academic research, upon my teaching, and if they don't think that that's a good fit that uh, I would be asked to leave. So there's a, there's a great anxiety, so to speak. But with this anxiety here, am I going to try to impress them and maybe fudge my CV a little bit, fudge my resume a little bit? Am I going to do that? Or do I still maintain the fear of God and to, again, do things with all honesty and all integrity? And so I pray that when we are tempted, when we are tempted to fudge our results, when we are tempted to claim more credit for what we have done, that we would be able to act with honesty, to act with integrity, and that we would fear God, for he is present both to bless and to judge. Let me pray for us. I was raised. Uh, One of the questions that was raised and let me grab my Bible here because I need it for the benediction. But one of the questions that was raised is how did Peter know? And ultimately Peter knew because it was the prompting of the Holy Spirit and so otherwise he wouldn't have known at all. So it was by prophetic insight. Now there's another question too in terms of God invites us to test him. That's is a conscious choice to see what God's response will be. It seems Ananias was not testing God but deceiving God. When is testing okay? I think there's not so much that God invites us to test him, to push the boundaries as to how much we can get away until he kind of gets upset, all right? That I don't think is tension. It's only in several cases where God invites uh, the people specifically to test his goodness or to test his power. But generally, it's not used in the same sense as testing in terms of provoking or in terms of rebellion. So it's a different usage in terms of testing there. Now, what well, about the... There's this passage in 1 John that says, perfect love casts out fear. All right, And that is basically when, when you talk to Christians about fear, that's the verse they always trumpet, that there is no fear in love itself. What kind of fear is that? The fear that's talked about in 1 John I think it's 1 John 4. It's not so much the fear of God, but the fear of judgment itself of final condemnation. And that we have no fear of final condemnation with God because God has already poured out his love in our lives and that we are children of God. And so that's why we make a distinction between a servile fear and a filial fear. Believers have no servile fear of terror and dread, of fear of final condemnation at all, but that nonetheless, believers are to have a filial fear, fear of God as a father, fear of not wanting to disappoint uh, the God as a father. All right? And then here, is it right to think of immediate consequences always here? And I don't think it's wrong that the question... Is it right to think of immediate consequences of certain sins a form of judgment is dying from crashing dying from crashing or car drunk driving I do, do not want to say that all right it is very difficult to say that you know my car broke down today god is angry at me because i haven't do my quiet time all right or, I didn't get an A in my Greek exam, so God is upset at me because I did not, again, do my quiet time. I do not think those are healthy at all. What is really special in terms of Anna is that it was a very much unique situations. Ultimately, we do believe that God has saved all of us, and that we are accepted primarily because of the blood of Christ. That is the first thing that we need to hold on to. And as to whether these temporal things have happened, you know, I didn't get a parking spot. I probably it's not the case that God is judging me because uh, I did not fear him, all right? So I think that we shouldn't make all these uh, quick illusions and quick jumps. Let me th- give the benediction for you all. Could you please arise? And let me give the benediction here, all right? And let me give you the words from, an, from another preacher from another teacher here. And this is the words from Ecclesiastes here. And he says, As you all go out, now all has been concluded, and here has, is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Go in the grace of God, go in the joy of the Lord, and also go in the fear of God. Amen.